Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. All of it brought to you by Quip Electric Toothbrushes. Right now, Three Martini Lunch listeners can get a Quip Electric Toothbrush at just $25 and get your first refill pack of brushes for free at getquip.com slash martini. So good, bad, and crazy martinis today, plus a very important champagne toast at the end of the podcast today. Let's begin with our good martini, and for that we have to go halfway around the world. And Politico has the story, although it's technically from the South China Morning Post. We talked about this story a couple of weeks ago. Hong Kong leader Carrie Lam gave her strongest pledge yet on Tuesday morning when she declared the highly unpopular extradition bill that sparked several mass protests was dead changing from an earlier script that it will die in 2020. While protesters had demanded a full withdrawal, Lamb stressed her stance on Tuesday had already been definitive. Speaking before the weekly meeting with her advisors in the Executive Council, Lamb described the government's work in amending the law as a complete failure. The chief executive acknowledged there were lingering doubts that the government could restart the amendment process within the Legislative Council's current term, which ends in 2020. There is no such plan. The bill is dead. Lamb said. So, Jim, we saw massive protests on the streets of Hong Kong. I believe we saw over a million people on more than one occasion there, which shows that when the people do uh, rise up, uh, you can force the government to listen. This was a particularly concerning piece of legislation because it would have given the Chinese government, Beijing, a whole lot more reach to just make the lives of Chinese people in, in Hong Kong miserable. And so the fact that this has been put on the shelf, at least for a couple of years, is good news. It is. And you think about it, Greg, how often do we see the Chinese government losing big on the world stage? They have really accumulated increasing power in a variety of forms, economic power, military power. And, you know, you'd figure that, you know, when they say jump in Hong Kong, clearly the reaction of the leader, Carrie Lam, and most of the legislators and government out there was like, okay, how high? The people took to the street in massive numbers. I know some people said this is up to maybe one in six or one in seven of every uh, Hong Kong residence was there. And it, you know, the, the two good signs, but one is that they had the defeat. And two is that it sounds like the protesters are not letting up. It's not everybody's going home and saying, okay, we trust you. They're probably going to be keeping a very sharp eye on what Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam's doing. You know, anytime you can see the forces of freedom and independence, and I know there were some moments of this protest got a little violent, some claims of bricks being thrown. They went in and vandalized the uh, Hong Kong legislative chambers. But that was a demonstration of the fervence with which the people opposed this legislation that basically would have put Hong Kong residents in fear of what uh, used to be called the knock on the door in the middle of the night. Hi, we're from the government. We're here to take you away. You're going to be judged by our system of justice, not the system of justice you've been used to here in Hong Kong for many years. So, again, you don't get to see victories like this too often. So let's raise our glass to that one uh, and hope that things stay as they are in Hong Kong. Exactly. And it's a great reminder to us in our current debate over whether to go down the path of some form of socialism or other countries that we're seeing embrace some of these principles, whether in Europe or Latin America in particular lately. It shows, you know, Hong Kong was a British territory for the longest time. It was only 1997 that the handover actually happened. And so freedom has been flourishing in Hong Kong for a long time. 
And now that it's been a Chinese property for the last 20 plus years, slowly and surely Beijing is trying to uh, strangle the freedom out of Hong Kong. And the fact that they push back now is not only great for Hong Kong, but a good reminder that when freedom is compromised, it's very hard to get it back. So fighting for it now is a pretty good idea. All right. Well, let's talk about Quip electric toothbrushes, because packing your toiletries somehow always involves a delicate game of stacking and space hacking. And don't get us started on the lotion that can explode all over your shaving kit. That's why Quip electric toothbrushes work just as well at home as they do on the go. The compact and wireless design tucks easily in the corner of your carry-on or your back pocket if you're just spending the night. Plus, the travel-ready cover protects your brush from sandy swimsuits and luggage slip-ups. And three-month battery life will last through the season, filled with weekends away. That's a really good thing to keep in mind because of the fact that the charge holds with your toothbrush. And Quip is making it easier than ever to keep up with your wake-up and wind-down routine when you're out of the office. There's a built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides. And it helps you clean your whole mouth evenly. Quip's multi-use cover works as a stand, mounts to mirrors, and slides over your bristles to pack and protect your Quip when you're on the go. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5, a friendly reminder when it's time for a refresh and to stay committed to your oral health. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association, and they're backed by more than 25,000 dental professionals, and they have thousands of verified five-star reviews. And now there's the Quip Kids Brush. The new brush is the same as our the original version, just tweaked for size down mouths. Kids are inspired to brush better and more often with oral care that looks and feels like the products the adults in their life use, and they're proud to use Quip. Help them develop a grown-up routine without childish gimmicks. And the Quip Toothbrush is one of our great sponsors for a while now. Jim is a very satisfied customer. He's talked about this over the years and how it's the favorite toothbrush he's ever had. I was generously given a a toothbrush also by Quip, but my wife saw it and thought it looked so cool that she was going to use it, and she still uses it. We were just on vacation last week, as most of our listeners know, off at the beach, and the Quip toothbrush is perfect on the go. The toothpaste is great, and my wife has never had any complaints. Uh, We still get the brushes uh, right on schedule, so you never have to worry about whether uh, the brushes are still doing a good job. Quip electric toothbrushes, definitely the way to go. So that's why our family loves it, Jim loves it, and uh, why we take it wherever we go when we go on vacation. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash martini right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash martini. All right, Jim, let's uh, move to our bad martini now. And it's a follow-up to yesterday's good martini. The good martini being that justice may be catching up to Jeffrey Epstein. And we mentioned yesterday that certain... Political figures have ties to Jeffrey Epstein, including the current president of the United States and including former President Bill Clinton. There's also a number of other people who are at least rumored to be attached to Jeffrey Epstein and might have been involved in this disgusting business of child sex trafficking or at least taking advantage of the girls in that operation. Only one of them, however, is actually issuing a statement at this point uh, saying he has nothing to do with it, and that would be President Clinton. Uh, He released a statement yesterday saying, President Clinton knows nothing about the terrible crimes Jeffrey Epstein pleaded guilty to in Florida some years ago or those with which he has been recently charged in New York. In 2002 and 2003, President Clinton took a total of four trips on Jeffrey Epstein's airplane, one to Europe, one to Asia, and two to Africa, which included stops in connection with the work of the Clinton Foundation. Staff, supporters of the foundation, and his Secret Service detail traveled on every leg of every trip. 
He had one meeting with Epstein in his Harlem office in 2002, and around the same time, he made one brief visit to Epstein's New York apartment with a staff member and his security detail. He's not spoken to Epstein in well over a decade, and he's never been to Little St. James Island, Epstein's ranch in New Mexico, or his residence in Florida. But the story doesn't end there, because Conchita Sarnoff, who first broke the Epstein story back in 2010, tells Fox News that the figure of four flights is not accurate, claiming that Clinton was a guest on Epstein's planes many more times over a longer period. She says, quote, I know from the pilot logs, and these are pilot logs that you know were written by different pilots at different times that Clinton went, that he was a guest of Epstein's 27 times, she said, adding that many of those times Clinton had his Secret Service with him, and many times he did not. Sarnoff went on to say that she believes Clinton, quote, is not telling the truth about his ties to Epstein. So, Jim, it's kind of weird that uh, Clinton's already going public with the denial when no one in any official capacity has suggested that he's about to be in any legal trouble. But uh, the fact that he's once again issuing a preemptive denial with information we know isn't true is classic Bill Clinton. Yeah, it really does give off a vibe of, well, depends on what the definition of is is. When they say, oh, a total of four trips, you know, a lot of people would think, oh, four trips. You know, no, no, these trips had many, like, multiple stops over several days, which really seems like a deliberate effort to downplay the amount of time he was spending on the plane, which, let's remember, was nicknamed the Lolita Express, right? We already know that this plane was one of the places that all of this bad behavior was going on. Again, we said, oh, one trip to Asia. Uh, okay, except the trip, the, the trip to Asia included Hong Kong, Japan. Singapore, some separate stop in China, Brunei, okay? The European trip included London, the Azores, Belgium, Norway, and Russia, right? So we're talking like, you know, multiple stops on this. So from city to city, country to country. So it's not like, oh, you know, one flight there, one flight back, he was on it twice. These flights probably involved six, seven separate flights each t- for each uh, one of these trips. So it really does seem like Clinton is trying to downplay this and I think, look, Clinton has a, a issue of the suspicion around his character. If you have a guy who is known for notorious for providing all kinds of women, including underage women, for uh, uh, you know uh, nocturnal missions, shall we say, you're telling me that of everybody else at that sexual buffet table, Bill Clinton said, no, not me. I'm not interested. Come on. We'll see if anything happens, if, if anything comes out in this legal process. This is something that's been a fierce issue of speculation since the moment the first Lolita Express reports came out, something really odd and unnerving is that, look, people know about Epstein's longtime friendship with Donald Trump and Trump, you know, praising him in interviews and stuff like that. And we know about these trips that Bill Clinton took. And interestingly, Greg, neither one of them raised this issue at all in the 2016 presidential race. Doesn't that seem a little weird? Yeah, if you thought it was a political winner in a really ugly race, you'd think it would have been used, but neither one of them could. Hmm. Inquiring minds want to know, as they used to say, Greg. Exactly. All right, let's move on to our crazy martini now, and we go to Politico for this and the 2020 Senate race in the state of Kansas. Chris Kobach, the polarizing former Kansas Secretary of State, launched a campaign for Senate on Monday, alarming Republicans who fear his candidacy could put the GOP-held open seat in jeopardy next fall. Kobach is the third Republican to announce a run for the seat held by Senator Pat Roberts, who is not seeking re-election next year. Kobach just lost a statewide race, the 2018 contest for governor, to Democrat Laura Kelly, and some Republicans worry that the otherwise safe Kansas seat could become competitive 
if Kobach emerges from a GOP primary, which could imperil the party's Senate majority. Republican leader's preferred candidate is Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, a former Kansas congressman and key ally to President Trump. But Pompeo faces a personal dilemma over whether to remain in Trump's cabinet or seek a Senate seat as he considers his own political future. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell told Politico last week that Pompeo was his first choice for the seat. There are, as uh, mentioned, a few other candidates already in the race, including State Treasurer Jake LaTurner and former NFL player Dave Lindstrom. Congressman Roger Marshall is also thinking about running and State Senate President Susan Wagle is as well. And another D.C. name that some folks might remember who's at least kicking it around is uh, American Conservative Union President Matt Schlapp, or maybe he's the chairman. But uh, Jim, Chris Kobach is uh, in an interesting spot here. He just ran a statewide race, which he lost. And the odds of him winning another statewide race have got to be lower than just about any other Republican running, you would think. Yeah, look, uh, we're, we're not quite in Roy Moore territory, but we are kind of getting in that neighborhood in the sense that, look, first of all, it's Kansas. Can Democrats win here? Sure, every now and then they do. Kathleen Sebelius comes to mind. But by and large, this is a pretty darn Republican race. It was 2018, a rough year for Republicans? Sure. But in the end, it wasn't really that close. Kobach lost with 43%. Uh, Laura Kelly, the Democrat who won, had 48%. What are you going to do differently this time? You're, you're the same guy. It's pretty much the same state. Yeah, maybe in a presidential year, you'll have higher turnout. And maybe that you know Trump on the top of the ticket will help and all that stuff. But like, look, Republicans don't want to need help from the top of the ticket to win a race in, 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 to keep a Senate seat in Kansas particularly when there are other options who are probably every bit as conservative and who don't bring their own controversies and problems and flaws as a candidate. It's also worth noting there's a a failed U.S. House candidate in Kentucky who's now going up against Mitch McConnell. Greg, do you remember Allison Lundergan-Grimes? Oh, yeah. Right. So this is part of the continued Democrats hunt for the next great Southern hope. The best way of thinking of Alison Lundergan-Grimes in the 2014 cycle is just picture female Beto O'Rourke from his coverage last year, and you kind of got the same thing. I'm not a big fan. If you run and you lose, and you lose badly, you lose a race that Republicans should win. Maybe it's a rough year and all that kind of stuff, but if you run and you lose, you lose pretty disappointingly, you probably should take a break. You, you probably should uh, sit out a cycle. What's changed? What what's different? What are you? Because your message isn't going to you know you're running statewide office once again. Your values aren't changed. Your message presumably hasn't changed very much. And for a lot of these candidates, there's this attitude of well, what's going to happen is the electorate is going to wake up and realize what a terrible mistake they made by turning me down the first time. And it's a little bit like that guy who's obsessed with a girl and who just won't <laughs> like guys, buddy. She shot you down three times. It's not going to be different this time. So, look, we'll see what happens. I guess this is what we have primaries for. But, look, sometimes some of these candidates need to take the hint and recognize that you, know, you, should, you really should not make a career out of being a professional candidate for higher office. Yeah, particularly when you don't win. Uh, I mean, that's the thing that the Democrats keep doing. They keep celebrating Beto and Stacey Abrams. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd prefer that virus not to spread to the Republican Party, but apparently Chris Kobach uh, got, a, got the infection. We'll see uh, what happens there in Kansas. All right. As mentioned at the top, we do have a champagne toast today. We learned this morning that Ross Perot has died. Ross Perot dying at the age of 89. And most people, particularly people our age, Jim, will remember him as the independent candidate in the 1992 and 1996 
presidential races, actually got on the debate stage in 1992. But uh, his life is just an amazing, great American life. Uh, born 1930, uh, graduated from the Naval Academy. In the 1960s, he founded Electronic Data Systems, took it public, became a billionaire. Uh, some folks call him the Bill Gates of the 60s. Sold it to GM in the 80s, made even more billions, uh, and then ran for president in 1992. And uh, see if this sounds familiar. He made trade a big issue, particularly at that time, because NAFTA was a hotly debated topic. And in the uh, town hall style debate with uh, George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, Perot got the first question out of the box about protecting American jobs. And it led to this famous line. Pretty simple. If you're paying $12, $13, $14 an hour for factory workers, and you can move your factory south of the border, pay a dollar an hour for labor, hire a young 25, let's assume you've been in business for a long time, you've got a mature workforce. Pay a dollar an hour for your labor, have no health care, that's the most expensive single element, making a car, have no environmental controls, no pollution controls, and no retirement, and you don't care about anything but making money, there will be a giant sucking sound going south. The giant sucking sound. Other people might remember him... Uh... Debating Al Gore over NAFTA on Larry King Live. Dana Carvey did a great impression of him. The, the can of finish uh, certainly became famous. Dallas Morning News, dallasnews.com with a great uh, obituary for Ross Perot today. Talking about his human side as well. I'm just going to read a little bit of this. A couple of days before Christmas, 1969, Perot called Ken Langone, who worked for him at the time. Langone later co-founded Home Depot from Laos, where Perot was trying to fly gifts to American POWs held in camps in and around Hanoi. Perot asked Langone to arrange an event for 98 children of POWs and MIAs returning with their mothers to JFK International Airport. They'd gone to Paris at Perot's expense for a one-day trip to picket the North Vietnamese embassy in the hopes of drawing public rebuke for mistreatment of their loved ones. Langone says, I put the phone down and thought to myself, my God, right in the middle of all this activity, he's thinking about the plight of these families and what he can do to alleviate the misfortune they're going through. He says, that was the thoughtfulness of Ross Perot. He was an exceptional Human being. 1986, Perot received the Winston Churchill Award for epitomizing the spirit of Britain's most famous statesman. He was only the third American to receive the coveted medallion honored for his efforts on behalf of American POWs in Vietnam in the 60s and for organizing a strike team that rescued two of his EDS employees from an Iranian prison in 1979, which later became the subject of the novel and the TV miniseries On Wings of Eagles, which is just amazing. So, Jim, um, there were certainly some oddities to the Perot-Stockdale campaign in 1992, but I fear that the attention he got for that overshadows far greater things that Ross Perot accomplished in his life. Yeah. um, You mentioned Carvey in the first thing coming. Now, here's the deal. See? Um, and it's, it's a, it's a little unfortunate. First of all, let, let's begin with, if you haven't read on wings of Eagles, I remember reading it as a teenager, just an amazing story. I mean, basically Ross Perot, when a couple of his employees were trapped in Iran around the time of the revolution is when the U S hostage crisis is starting to go on. He basically went out and found old military guys and basically said, okay, we're going to get these guys out of prison. How are we going to do it? And and basically, it's like a libertarian fantasy. It's like private sector Navy SEALs. Just, you know, the, the, the companies say, all right, we're going to get our guys out of there. Uh, Pro, by the way, did not like, you know, did not go into Iran with them. But uh, it was really kind of it's a fascinating nonfiction thriller. Many American CEOs would be concerned about their employees being stuck in a country in a dangerous situation. But only Perot would do something, you know, as bold and some might say as crazy as this. 
also for his presidential campaigns, uh, look, it's easy to kind of scoff and then we've made a getting out the charts and we're going to get under the hood and we're going to, you know, roll up our sleeves, you know, give, you know, no one's come even close to the 19% that he got in 1992. And then in 1996, four years later, uh, he got 9%. And let's, you know, look, Ralph Nader's never done that. Jill Stein's never done that. I don't think any, you know, Harry Brown or Gary Johnson and all those guys winning that many votes in a presidential election outside one of the two major parties is really hard to do. And I remember watching he and his wife dancing to the, uh, uh, I believe it was Patsy Cline's Crazy <laughs> on election night. Um, that it, you know, They had not won, but they had indeed won something of a moral victory by winning the largest third share of the vote for a third party, so I want to say, since Teddy Roosevelt off the top of my head. I mean, really significant uh, accomplishments there and an indicator that, that politics was changing. Uh, the politics of celebrity, media-savvy, you know, he, he tried to focus on the deficit and the debt. People point out a lot of people, Republicans kind of fume about him, believing that he cost uh, George H.W. Bush reelection. I've seen political scientists arguing about if Perot had not run or if Perot had not dropped out. By the way, people forget he was leading when he dropped out of the race in 1992. He then reentered a few months later um, about whether he cost Bush his reelection bid. I think it's safe to say it probably would have been closer and that, you know, the per- typical Perot voter was somewhat aligned uh, with the Republican Party, although probably you could say there was very much a class and cultural di- culture difference between H. Ross Perot and George H.W. Uh, Bush. Fascinating guy, you know, went off some crazy theories and claims about, you know, Bush trying to sabotage his daughter's wedding and all that kind of talk, but tried to focus on certain issues. I think his stance on trade will be debated for a long time because on the one hand, you could say, look, the 1990s were not... A rough time for the American economy. A lot of people see them as the glory days for the American economy and an increase in American exports. But you did see manufacturing jobs going overseas and going to Mexico and places like that. So, And also, you could probably say that the Perot bids were kind of the prequel to the Trump era. Uh, certain themes and certain issues of populism and trade and, and uh, kind of concern for Americans' forgotten communities all echoed uh, in, in Trump's campaign. Uh, so kind of fast in what we know, Trump himself had a, at one point been interested in running for the reform party that was set up by H. Ross Perot. So a really intriguing and complicated legacy for H. Ross Perot. And on, on by every single definition you can imagine, H. Ross Perot was an American original. Jim, an amazing story. Um, and uh, the champagne toast to Ross Perot, condolences to his family. Uh, Jim, we will reconvene on Wednesday. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And don't forget to visit our friends over at Quip. You can get that Quip toothbrush starting at just $25. Get your first refill pack of brushes free at getquip.com slash martini. Tune in again Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.